0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Just as 50 years ago when the world used international treaties to defuse the threats posed by nuclear weapons, today the world needs a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty. A global initiative to phase out fossil fuels, support dependent economies, workers and communities to diversify away from fossil fuels, ensure 100% access to renewable energy globally and importantly, ensure a just transition that leaves no one behind. You can show your support for this vital initiative at FossilFuelTreaty.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Mike Davis to the Sustainability Agenda. Mike is CEO of Global Witness, a pioneering, campaigning NGO that has worked for 25 years to expose the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. Thank you very much, Mike, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Thanks, Vogel, for having me on.
0: So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you today and getting, I guess, an update in some sense, because I spoke to Gillian Caldwell uh, maybe four or five years ago now on the podcast about the great work that Global Witness was doing. So yes, uh, looking forward to getting some insights on, on, on how the organization works today, some of the uh, campaigns you're working on, priorities, what what's on your mind as an organization, I suppose. But maybe before we, 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 we dive in, as it were, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, Mike, and uh, what you're role is? Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm the CEO at Global Witness and I've been in this position since just before COVID began. Uh, I've actually been at the organisation though for most of my career, 20 years in fact, and I started out as a forest investigator in Cambodia um, yeah, back at the end of 2002 and since then I've worked across different campaigns that we run on themes to do with conflict financing, corruption and environmental issues as well
0: great great now w- w- always like to get a little bit of a sense of I guess the lay of the land and, w- and what's on uh, people's minds uh, there's so many environmental and, and human rights and other crises really uh, that are kind of interlocking and growing as it were um, and I'm just wondering is there anything in particular uh, that, that's on your mind right now Mike and that, that kind of worries you the most
1: Yes, we're focused particularly now on the climate crisis and the part of that which is to do with the power imbalance between those who, in a sense, hold all the cards big business, those who are profiting most from climate breakdown, and those who are most adversely affected. So, ordinary people uh, across the world who are bearing the brunt of uh, the, the climate. Uh, breaking down in, in the places where they live, but also facing off against the kind of predatory resource grabs, which are uh, part and parcel of, of what's driving the planet to the brink. So our work these days is really cohering around this theme of power, who has it, who's who's shut out, um, how we can dismantle and take down the the toxic power of polluters, notably big oil and gas, uh, banks that are financing deforestation and at the same time help to build up the voices and stand up for the rights of those who are taking a stand for for their forests their lands um, and their right to a sustainable future
0: very interesting uh, some big themes there some big questions and uh, i'm sure we'll come back to those in, in in shortly i'm also wondering a little bit what gives rise to optimism what what when you look around are there seeds of hope or you might say uh optimistic uh perspective
1: i'm optimistic in a way i have to be to to do this kind of work and i think probably the same applies to my colleagues too we you know we are driven by hope um, for better outcomes a better future and i see quite a few grounds for optimism despite all the the doom and gloom and cause for concern around us i think for instance about the increasingly effective and creative ways in which people around the world are getting their voices heard when it comes to the demand for action on the climate crisis. And I draw particular inspiration from the way in which young people in so many places and so many different ways are doing this. And I also take heart from the fact that I do think that the penny is starting to drop, uh, even in economies and societies like like ours in the UK, where where we've been so habituated to the idea that we're addicted to to oil and gas, that actually things really have to change. And we need to shift our mindset away from um, a dependency um, and a sense of being being chained to an economy and, and actually a society too, which is substantially shaped by, by big oil and gas. So that gives me optimism. And I also think that the weighting is beginning to shift in terms of, what people, even people perhaps of um, a less adventurous mindset are are thinking about the opportunities for for them, um, their businesses, their families when it comes to to the economy and an increasing recognition that actually um, there's a lot more jobs and a more sustainable future in, in shifting towards a genuinely green and renewable economy.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Now, you you talked about uh, the, the importance of power, your analysis of power, research into power imbalances and so forth. I just wanted to maybe just get a, a, a brief overview, as it were, um, of how, how you see things, uh, how things have pro- progressed or or changed, should we say, at least in, in the last, you know, uh, should we say five to 10 years, where... Um, on the face of it, there seems to be considerable momentum towards new regulatory initiatives from the EU and deforestation, all the net zero commitments of corporations, uh, various uh, related uh, initiatives that, 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 that would would seem to suggest that, that companies, that uh, investors are taking this more seriously now, and climate, and the SECs looking at scope three emissions and so forth. So, I'm just wondering. Uh, how real is that, do you think? Uh, I mean, a big question there and covering a lot of ground um, and and it obviously varies across, you know, industries and and companies and, and, and particular issues and so forth. But you do... In the press, see a lot of attention to the, these these new initiatives and you know the various finance initiatives, uh, groups of investors and various uh, fora, you know, who are making these kind of commitments as well.
1: I think it's a mixed picture. I, I think coming back to your optimism point, there's grounds for hope that the needle is is starting to move, and that creates opportunities for genuine action on these seemingly intractable problems and at the same time we need to bring to these debates a degree of of healthy skepticism um, and groups like ours need to be need to be there to, to be calling out the if you like the um the authentic the genuinely promising initiatives from those which frankly are just a load of greenwashing because there's plenty of that around as well so i would look for instance to not just the initiatives you mentioned but another one which our teams have been working very hard on over the past 3-4 years which is moves to get in place a new law in the European Union which would hold companies to account, accountable for their their environmental their human rights impacts um and within the environmental impacts ones potentially to do with climate um and being accountable to the um the provisions of the the Paris Agreement this is a, a new proposed law which um, may come into, may go onto the books later this year. That's got huge potential to really hold companies accountable. Um, I would contrast that with, for instance, some of the the rhetoric and pronouncements and promises which emanate from voluntary schemes. And you mentioned ones to do with finance. And we do some work as well around the issue of banks and asset managers, prominent high street banks and very well known asset managers, which are in a way banking on planetary destruction through financing the gutting of tropical rainforests in places like the Brazilian Amazon, the Congo Basin, parts of Asia Pacific. Um, And what I'm talking about here is the, uh, the contrast, the contradiction between how on the one hand you get banks and financiers signing up to very green and worthy sounding pledges at COP meetings about the part they're going to play, while simultaneously investing these huge sums in businesses like cattle ranching in in Brazil, which are ripping through the lungs of the planet. And the sums that, that they're investing and the profits they're making are really very substantial. Indeed, we did some calculations as to how much investment had been made into destructive agribusiness ventures since the Paris Agreement and uh, the, the total we came up with was um, around $156 billion, um, which appeared to have made um, the banks and asset managers in question about $1.7 billion in, in, in proceeds. And so they're not really walking the walk at the moment, and we need regulation there to make sure that they do, to make it illegal to to finance the destruction of the world's most climate-critical forests. And we also need action to get the... Uh, polluting influence of big oil and gas out of the policy making processes, which we're all depending on to to keep our planet intact. And I'm thinking particularly here about the way in which uh, decision making at a national level influence over governments is is exercised and manipulated by big oil and gas companies and, and also in international fora too. So this is very conspicuous at the UN COP summits and We've done investigations on this the past couple of COP meetings to, to try to figure out once the, the list of delegates, the list of attendees actually appears, who is actually there and who is represented. And what we've found is that the, the fossil fuels industry, if it were a country, for example, that the Glasgow COP would have been the best represented of any country in the world. And last year at Sharm El Sheikh, although their, um, the fossil fuel delegation collectively was was actually second to united arab emirates which of course is itself a petro state the number of fossil fuel lobbyists at cop had actually gone up by about 25 percent, and this needs to end because this is not just about optics we actually have for instance um the likes of shell climate envoys previously boasted about interfering with and watering down commitments made by, made at cop um, and we've got some really underhand and sneaky behavior going on, such as, for instance, the CEO of BP, Bernard Looney, at the last COP in Egypt, um, showing up not as a representative of BP, but as a delegate of uh, Mauritania, one of the, the poorest countries in the world. This really needs to end um, if we're to get the, the action which we all need and deserve quickly enough from, from our governments and through these international policymaking mechanisms.
0: Uh, that's that's fascinating because I, I know when I spoke to Gillian and, and I've spoken to you know various uh, uh, you know people over the years talking about the 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 power of the oil and gas uh, industry and so forth and uh, yet it it on it goes um, how how powerful do you think it is and what what are some of the ways in which it operates?
1: Well, it shows up in in, in different ways. I would say at a global level. Uh, we keep seeing signs of far too much power and influence over decision-making to do with energy and to do with climate by big oil and gas companies. Um, We see a kind of revolving door type situation in countries like the UK, for instance, where people coming out of big oil and gas companies are going into roles in government and vice versa. In in the U S of course, it's even more in your face because um, oil and gas companies are, are allowed quite openly to, to buy uh, influence in, in the U S legislature. That That is of course a form of corruption, but it's one which the U S law currently allows, not least because of the lobbying efforts by those same companies. And we see it, we see it in the EU as well. For instance, um, in, in recent times, there's been recorded by one NGO, um, Corporate Europe Observatory, over 100 meetings between the fossil fuel industry and European Commission leaders since February. And we see how in the EU and also in the US, the response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been for um, lobbyists, particularly representing the gas industry, to push policymakers really, really hard to make concessions to them, to throw more public money at infrastructure, which would get us all addicted to, to piped gas for the next several decades, which is, of course, exactly what we don't need um, in terms of the, the outlook from a climate point of view. Um, and actually, neither do we need it from a human rights point of view, given how much of, um, how much of the oil and gas, which we depend on, comes from highly autocratic and abusive regimes, Russia being an obvious example, but there are many others besides.
0: Yeah, indeed, and and of course uh, this year it's Sultan Ahmed Al Jaber who is uh, COP twenty eight president designate. Um, that's kind of hard to
1: digest. It's hard to accept, isn't it? Because actually, what we need is for these COP meetings to to be taking place in venues where they are going to be free from um, government driven. Fossil fuel lobbying, and and also when they're free, full stop for for people to participate, um, and speak openly and raise critical issues, which which in UAE they're not allowed to do. Um, it's got extremely repressive laws, uh, which which effectively prohibit free speech, um, and a track track record, including very recently, of trying to deter people who show up for international meetings from from saying what's what's really on their minds. So. Um, it's it's really quite incongruous and disturbing and yes, the kind of thing which if it wasn't quite so serious would, would, would probably be the basis of a, of, of, of a good piece of satire. But, but sadly, that's the reality. We're stuck with this absolutely critical COP meeting where there are actually quite high hopes that there could be agreement to actually phase out the use of fossil fuels is being hosted by one of the most influential petrostates in the world. Indeed, indeed.
0: So what are some measures that you think would help to, shall we say, inoculate uh, uh, the these uh, national bodies and international bodies from the power and extraordinary wealth of the uh, fossil fuel industry?
1: I think it really comes down to a combination of things. So one is particular measures and policies and laws which would tackle issues like Uh, campaign financing by uh, political donations by fossil fuel companies um, which would address the conflicts of interest involved in uh, people shifting from jobs in big oil and gas firms to jobs in government and vice versa. I think we also need measures in place to get at this problem of international policy making spaces like COP being contaminated by oil and gas lobbyists. Um, That needs to be thought through Obviously, fairly carefully, given that, that a, a fair portion of that that lobbying power comes from um, state-owned oil and gas companies, who who currently at least are able to, to show up um, in the in the guise of governmental representatives. And I think there's something else too, which we're also working on, which is just a a wider effort to to change the the public perception. Uh, the the narrative, the story, if you like, around oil and gas, so I think in societies like the one which which I live in, in the UK, it's not as though everybody loves big oil and gas companies, but we've somehow been brainwashed, I think, into regarding them as inevitable, too big to fail, absolutely essential. That, that then provides a handy foundation for the, the current myth which these companies are building, that they are indispensable to the green transition which is which is nonsense but but it's been um it's a message which has been carefully developed and and, and put across quite skillfully and i actually think there's an opportunity now for people to to start to call that out uh, a bit more vociferously and and reject it and say no let, let's turn the page we, we want something better we deserve something better um and there's all sorts of evidence around and about right now about just how destructive the influence of these companies is. I mean, we, we're talking here in this discussion, the two of us, about the the impact of oil and gas companies on on climate. But if we look around, we see some other things too. We, we've got oil and gas companies which are actually at the centre of arguably the most serious conflict in the, the Northern Hemisphere, certainly the only one which seems to have the potential to go nuclear, Russia's war on Ukraine. Where where these companies basically provided Putin with with a war chest? We we did some calculations about how oil and gas companies together had put um, around 100 billion dollars in the hands of Putin between the time that he annexed Crimea in 2014 and the full scale invasion of Ukraine last year. And then, of course, there's a the question of where does the money come from, which pays for the Russian tanks, infantry, artillery—well, it overwhelmingly comes from from oil and gas, um, which accounted for over forty percent of the, the the Kremlin's revenues prior to the conflict beginning, um, and they've continued to be very successful in in selling this material, um, and very often via the um, uh, via the, the the channels provided by major oil and gas companies and and oil traders. So one of the things that we've been doing is is investigating that, seeing who's involved, who's profiteering, calling it out and bringing about some behavioural changes on the part of some of those companies. So we've got oil and gas companies centre stage in the climate crisis, this huge conflict, and then, of course, the related energy crisis, which is facing people in countries in Europe and beyond, in terms of uh, our ability to pay our heating bills, because the the, the prices of, of oil and gas have shot up. Um, and the companies which are orchestrating this and and, and positioning themselves as the, the suppliers, the brokers of this, have benefited enormously, as we know, from from recent profit announcements by the likes of BP and Shell. And Exxon and Chevron and Total. And so it really does feel like this is the moment for us to move this conversation forward about what collectively um, we're, we're willing to, to tolerate in terms of being pushed around um, and manipulated by by oil and gas companies. And we see quite a big opportunity to, to shift the public debate around that right now.
0: Yeah, very interesting indeed. And of course um, the you know the industry and lobbyists and uh, and the media have have uh, not missed an opportunity to somehow blame you know increases in energy costs on the green transition and, and related kind of questions, but it does bring up this issue as you know who bears the cost of increased energy prices and the just the vast sums of money that are inside the you know that the, the fossil fuel industry are making, and the investment needs to really ge- you know build a uh, powerful renewable energy uh, sector, uh, you know, in various countries and so forth, just stopping the fossil fuel, uh, you know, or or stopping fuel research uh, exploration and so forth. We, we need to have other energy to take that place. And they have, their, you know, the whole energy ecosystem, the, the these fossil fuel companies are at the centre of it. And the sums of money they're talking about investing in renewables are pitiful, actually, compared to the overall sums of money involved in the fossil fuel industry. It's probably outside the remit of the kind of communications work you do, maybe. But at the same time those kind of initiatives to to uh you know to get the energy to you know maybe privatize them or in various different ways you know take the money that's going into the fossil fuels and 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 invest that in the longer term renewable energy sources
1: we we would agree with that and it is something that we look at we we set up a campaign a new one back in september october time because we could see the way in which the debate was moving in terms of the the contrast is very ugly contrast between the immense profits, which oil and gas majors were were set to make uh, on the back of the Ukraine conflict um, at exactly the same moment that people were having to choose between heating and eating. And so we set up a team to look at this um, and be doing some rapid fire reporting on the profit announcements, the CEO bonuses announcements, various other moments really to draw people's attention to the gross inequity of, of all of this. And, part of that of course is to do with addressing the the way in which governments have have failed to to play their role in protecting the public interest um and taxing these profits in a manner which yes as you were saying would would give us some funds with which to to power a green transition and unfortunately the example of the UK is particularly illustrative because we we've, we've had a government here which has um for quite some time now talked up how, serious its response to this is and introduced a windfall tax. And yet what we saw when the um, profit announcements were, were coming through at uh, the end of, of last year and, and start of this year when we actually saw the annual figures was that companies like uh, Shell, for example, that actually paid very, very little in, in these windfall taxes. And that's because the the regulatory system which the government had, had set up allowed them through clever accounting practices to just Shift the numbers around so that what was actually taxable was a very small proportion of the profits they were actually making, and they were able to claim back money through things like the uh, the costs of them decommissioning infrastructure and and, and on a basis of, of investments that they said they were making. And this is really robbing the the UK taxpayer members of the public at a time when, of course, you know we see. Um, public services, public infrastructure under huge uh, pressure and in some cases quite literally crumbling. And, and we're still working through a period where where we, we, we have strikes most weeks because public sector workers not being paid enough. And yet at the same time, we have these rapacious companies making absolutely eye-watering historic profits when that in no way um, speaks to a kind of public service that they're providing or even their business acumen. They're just, uh, they're just profiteering from a war, which actually they've been financing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I interviewed Helen Thompson a little while ago and, uh, When you see uh, so much of what's been happening in geopolitics and national politics through the lens of energy policies, it's quite eye opening, really, and uh, startling in many ways. Um, Now, uh, I want to, you you mentioned the UAE and uh, I guess the repression, I suppose, um, of, of, uh, well, I mean, you could say civil society in some way, um, but this is not unique to uh, countries that we associate with, you know, fairly uh, extreme regimes. This is something that's happening in many, many countries, a crackdown on civil society, uh, restricting the rights to freedom of assembly. Uh, You you mentioned the UK. This has been uh, certainly amped up uh, quite quite intensely. Um, And you've got, you know, various activist groups who, you know, uh, are legitimately making, you know, uh, critiques and, 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 you know, uh, trying to draw attention to what's happening. And uh, it seems quite a, a tremendous momentum. And I'm just wondering, this is something you, you've you looked at a little as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? And, and, and what can be done to, do you think, to kind of uh, slow down this or to, to fight against this uh, intolerable uh, crackdown, really?
1: Yes, I mean, we would certainly see this, Overall threat to, to democracy globally as being very much bound up with with the climate crisis, um, and if we don't have democracies and if we don't have uh, open societies in which civil society groups and, and and everybody can can participate and raise their voice, then we're we're really going to struggle to get the outcomes we need on climate, and we we do work on this from two perspectives in particular. One is the need to uh, protect and uphold the rights of what we call land and environmental defenders. So that's people around the world who are defending their lands, their forests, uh, facing off, as I mentioned earlier, against um, predatory resource grabs often driven by big companies and investors. We also do work around what we call digital threats to democracy, and that's the role of Big tech platforms like Facebook in proliferating hate speech, uh, disinformation that's designed to undermine elections um, and discriminatory messaging that that targets uh, women and targets minorities. And we see connections between these two, but I'll take them in turn. So the work we do with Land and Environmental Defenders has been about documenting attacks on uh, and killings of uh, land and Environmental Defenders over over ten years now. We we started this work when a former colleague of ours, somebody I used to work with in Cambodia called Chut Vati, was murdered while undertaking an investigation into illegal logging. And we've been endeavouring since then to document with a network of partners around the world what the patterns are globally. And it's pretty grim, unfortunately. Um, what what we see is that an average of. Um, Uh, One land and environmental defender has been killed every two days since 2012. Um, The last report that we published on this last year to do with uh, the level of attacks in 2021 showed that 200 land and environmental defenders had been killed in the course of their their activism, um, their efforts to to defend their resources. Uh, And this is an issue which is increasingly recognized as not just a, a human rights crisis, but also part of the climate crisis as well. In fact, our reporting was was, was referenced by um, by speakers at, at the last COP event. Uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, um, talked about the, the issue of land and environmental defenders for the first time. Um, the Norwegian Prime Minister specifically referenced our work um, and asked delegates to observe a moment's silence in recognition of the sacrifices that defenders make. Now, what, what what can we do about this? Well, there's there's several dimensions to this, of course, and quite a lot of the the dynamics which give rise to the suppression and attacks and killings and suppression of, uh, of free speech are bound up with the politics of of the, the the countries in question. But there are global trends as well. One of the ones which we look at particularly is the relationship between attacks on land and environmental defenders on the one hand and the uh, the activities of, of large international companies on the other. And very often we see these relationships between uh, the chains of investment and the supply chains, which track back to North America, Europe, China, and this violence. And that's why we're doing this work, which I mentioned a bit earlier around this law, which has been uh, proposed and developed in the EU, something called a Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which would require all companies operating in Europe to do what's called due diligence checks on their supply chains to uh, detect and address risks of, of their activities, their purchases, giving rise to Environmental harms or, or human rights abuses, and potentially allowing redress for for land and environmental defenders, and scope for them to hold companies accountable. So that's one example of, of one of the things that we're pushing for. On the the other aspect to our work, which I mentioned, this digital threats to democracy campaign, um, we're we, we've been documenting instances in which social media platforms, notably Facebook, have repeatedly failed to meet their promises to exercise control over the content, which is pushed out through their platform. We've documented instances of their their apparatus being, if you like, set up to allow the publication of incitement to genocide in Myanmar, um, incitement to uh, ethnic violence in Ethiopia, um, disinformation in relation to elections in Brazil, uh, and also actually the United States And what we're doing there is we're actually making a case for a fundamental change in the business model of those platforms because at the moment it's set up to encourage people by uh, preying on their their fears, their anxieties, their prejudices to get them to click through as many pages as possible so that they can then be bombarded with as many adverts as possible uh, and the platform can maximize its profits. And, And this has to change because it has a significant impact on the overall health of our societies, um, the level of openness in which people can express themselves, um, the quality of information which people get at a time when they desperately need it to to make informed choices about what they vote for, but also what they demand in terms of issues like climate action. And just to connect up the dots a little bit, we've actually just published um, a new report about the... The threats which um, those working on climate issues directly, climate scientists, face. And um, we did a survey of 468 scientists um, around the world, in fact. And what we found is that overall 39% of, of all those we polled have experienced online harassment or abuse as a result of their climate work. And, and quite a lot of this comes through in, in very uh, gendered forms with particular ways in which female scientists are targeted. Um, giving rise to scientists feeling like they they don't want to express themselves anymore um, they're experiencing depression um, and and overall suffering um quite considerably and having their work obstructed because of the the way in which our our, our digital spaces are being managed or or, or not managed so that 's an example of something else that needs to change and and as I was saying, it really needs to come about through a fundamental change in the business model. Um, and an end which can really only come through through regulation and key jurisdictions to the ability of social media platforms to um to carry out this kind of um activity whereby they're engaging in 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 what we call surveillance advertising um and uh, and, and gathering information on on people which um which they then use as a basis for highly selective um guiding of them to to uh, additional content um, and and advertising material.
0: It's quite interesting to see uh, America suddenly paying attention to this, which has been going on. I think if you've got children, you've seen it um, over, you know, many, many years, decades, uh, the growth of social media uh, and on these platforms, the algorithms and just TikTok Algorithm is just so powerful, um, so much more powerful than than what what has been used, and on, on Facebook and these other uh, platforms as well. But suddenly now they're uh, raising questions in a way which they haven't before. But um, yeah, uh, a big, 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 uh, big challenge there. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'd like to get how you work with uh, other organisations and particularly uh, campaigning groups and activists, particularly in, in the global south and and those uh, and other you know affected regions, because you see many of the initiatives that, uh, well, some would argue, water down some of the commitments, you know, from from the zero to net zero and carbon offsetting the voluntary markets and so forth. They're quite reliant on these projects, many of which are happening in the Global South, uh, you know, offsetting projects, reforestation projects, and that kind of thing, as well as, uh, you know, the the, I guess, the exploitation as well that goes into, you'd have to say, some of the, Green energy initiatives, some of the minerals that are required and so forth, uh, as well as most importantly, who carries the, you know, the cost, uh, who who bears the brunt of these climate uh, disasters, and, you know, Bangladesh and Pakistan, you've seen many of these countries and more to come. But I'm just wondering, can you talk about the lay of the land a little bit uh, with these organizations and, and and another, it's quite a big question, but any observations on, on on some of the organizations you're working with us or what you see on the ground?
1: Yeah. Partnership is a fundamental part of our campaigning model. Uh, and we do that because that that's what we stand for. That's in line with our values. We want to elevate the voices and the agendas um, and and help support the efforts to to get change on behalf of those who are most adversely affect, affected by the climate crisis and we see that as a, a big part of the responsibility of an organization like ours and we also do it because um when we are working with with partners who um who Who want to collaborate with us we 're obviously in a position to to benefit from their insights um and and, and gather better data and, and and with them make better decisions about what we what we campaign for uh, and i 'll give you a couple of examples which connect with some of what you you said in your question uh, you mentioned for instance this This question of the green transition and the rush for critical minerals, we're actually setting up at the moment a new campaign uh, which is an evolution of of long-standing work to do with rooting out corruption in in mining deals globally. But this new iteration of it is one which we're developing with a network of partners in four countries in sub-Saharan Africa and also um, work which we've already taken on with, with partners in Myanmar. And what that's about is about trying to build up the case for the uh, extraction and use of these so-called strategic minerals, rare earths, some people call them, um, which are essential to to the green transition, that that is carried out in a way which is genuinely equitable and does not, in time-honoured fashion, see a situation where multinational companies and, and ultimately global north economies are driving demand for raw materials from countries which are essentially then expected to just um, soak up the the adverse side effects in terms of labor rights abuses conflict corruption and more than that in fact that, that to make the case with our partners for for the green transition being one which involves an equitable share of the the benefits in terms of technology transfer and also the the creation of of jobs and industry around it. And that's something which we're working up at the moment. Another example would be the Land and Environmental Defenders Campaign, which I've referred to a few times now. That is all about working with a network of partners, um, many of whom are present in Latin America and some in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of Asia, to... To gather data on threats faced by land and environmental defenders and then report on it globally, publicly, in a manner which gets the attention of policymakers and helps not just us, but also our partners um, get the ear of decision makers, in, notably in, in governments and intergovernmental authorities like the EU, where people are making decisions on regulation which would govern the conduct of, of companies which are frequently instrumental in in the threats and attacks and killings. And one more example I'll give, which relates to Defenders' work and also our forest campaign, um, much of which centers on Brazil, is the way in which we we work with partners to report on deforestation and the role of big meat companies like the Brazilian firms, JBS, Minerva, Marfrig, and their international bankers, likes of HSBC, Barclays, Santander, BlackRock, and so forth. Um, you know, talking today and actually last night, um, our team working with our the chair of our board, who uh, is based in Brazil, uh, convened an event, a, a film screening in Sao Paulo um, to uh, to show a film which which we've made with partners about um, the the impacts of deforestation driven by agribusiness on indigenous communities in. In, in parts of the Brazilian Amazon, and, and that was an event which actually showcased um, some of those who are in the film, um, their stories, their voices, their agendas. So that's just one example from the past twenty four hours of, of, of how we we try to build partnership into our work. Very interesting, uh,
0: w- w- wonderful, wonderful. Now um, we discussed uh, some of the made ma- some major campaigns you are working on, uh, you know, the fossil fuel, uh, environmental defenders, bank finance, and I guess. You know, we haven't really talked about this, but you're in, in some sense a campaigning organisation, uh, and I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about what it means to 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 actually uh, mount a campaign. Maybe if there's an example from one of those or another area, and a kind of synopsis of how a campaign might go from beginning to end, to some of the influences or something like that. If you don't, if you think that's not too ambitious in the, the time we have.
1: I'll try to give a boiled down version. It, it will miss out some important points. But when we think of the main ingredients for a global witness campaign, we often talk about how we're going to um, find the facts, um, tell the story and and change the system. And what that refers to is the way in which we we try to build our campaigns on a strong evidence base. We, we do investigations of, in a variety of forms. Some are more journalistic. Uh, increasing numbers are based on on data digging type methods we use undercover techniques as well we work with partners as i just mentioned and then we use that as as a foundation for in a sense creating and telling uh, engaging stories which which are grounded in the evidence but which make a human connection um which get through to to sections of the public and policymakers and generate a case for change and that in turn becomes a springboard for us to then do again often with our partners very targeted advocacy lobbying um, geared towards decision makers uh, in governments uh, sometimes large companies in in, in intergovernmental bodies there are other ingredients of course which which are which are very important here We, we talked a bit about partnership another is timing and I would say increasingly given that We're working on these aspects of the climate crisis, huge, sprawling, uh, and often quite slippery set of issues. We we need to build ever increasing amounts of agility into the way that we campaign. So to give you a quick example of what this might look like, just over uh, a year ago, a couple of weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, we were contacted by somebody representing a, a network of Ukrainian diaspora figures who said, Uh, We've seen your work, Global Witness, on Blood Diamond, and we want to mount a campaign on Putin's blood oil, and we'd like you to do it, please. And we thought about this, not for very long. We thought about it for about a day, and then we said, yeah, we're going to do this, and we're going to have to move really quickly. So we created, within a few days... A team of six people drawn from existing teams around the organization, investigators, particularly data investigators, communication specialists, and we set to work on trying to uh, turn out evidence-based but some short snappy stories as quickly as we could to shape the emerging public narrative around the role of oil and gas uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also what that meant from a climate perspective. And we turned out a lot of these stories very quickly and we were successful in having early impacts which forced changes in the behavior of, of big companies like Shell and BP, who, for example, were um, running a rather questionable little operation whereby they would blend uh, Russian oil with um, with Kazakh oil. And as long as the, the blend had uh, no more than 49% Russian oil in it, um, it would be It will be passed off as Kazakh. This is actually applied particularly to jet fuel products. Um, We were then also successful in um, bringing about a change in the the operations of Total, big French uh, oil and gas major. Um, What happened there was we did an investigation which showed that gas condensate from uh, a large uh, gas project which they had in Siberia with a, with a, a Russian partner was... Um, making its way into supply chains, which were then carrying jet fuel to Russian air bases uh, close to the border with Ukraine, and going into fuel tanks of Su-34 fighter bombers, which were which were attacking targets in Ukraine with with unguided ordnance. And we brought that story out in conjunction with the French newspaper Le Monde. Uh, the next day, a French minister went on TV and said, "This needs to be investigated." And the day after that, the Total press office had a busy day because in the morning they put out a statement which effectively impl- um, which effectively threatened to sue Le Monde and Global Witness. And in the afternoon, they put out a second statement saying that they were withdrawing from the gas project. And Of course, they said they were intending to do this all along. It's nothing to do with our reporting, and we don't believe that.
0: <laughs> Bravo. Yes. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting indeed. Uh, as I say, uh, as you say, I'm sure there's more detail and, and, and the, the you know the work that goes into this and uh, the the outcomes. Now, uh, how are you funded as an organisation, Global Witness, and what influence do funders have on, firstly, specific campaigns, and I guess yeah, the direction of travel of the work that you do.
1: The the overwhelming majority of our our funding comes from what I'd term. Um, philanthropic trusts and foundations. And also, to a lesser extent, we, we get funding from uh, from governments. We get funding from the Norwegian government and the Irish government currently. And that collectively is over 90% of our income. And the other less than 10% comes from, from individual givers. But we, we don't have a membership. Um, we don't take money from companies and we don't sell things so we 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 we, we are basing our 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 financing and, and our sustainability on those sorts of um those sorts of philanthropic sources
0: indeed right and what influence do funders have on specific campaigns
1: i i would say with all due respect to our funders that they 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 don't have that much influence on specific campaigns we pride ourselves on our independence. And we need that in order to uh, to have credibility so that people listen to us and and also so that we can get the work done. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that agility and being the organisation which responds at speed and scale to external opportunities and issues um, in the areas that we work on um, when they arise is really important we would not be able to do that if every time we wanted to do something we had to go out and start writing fundraising proposals for it but of course you know we 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 we're also attuned because we have to be to the dynamics within um the philanthropic landscape um which of course in turn is 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 influenced by wider economic forces so uh, so we, we we obviously think carefully about that, but we we pride ourselves on on our independence and 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 not effectively being, you know, at the beck and call of of our funders and and our funders. I mean, we've been around for nearly thirty years now. Our, our funders understand that. Um, we have had some instances in the past, not recently, where. Perhaps we had one or two funders that didn't understand that and, and tried to get us to do things. Or I'm thinking of one occasion where the British government actually tried to stop us from doing something and we said, no, we're going to do it anyway, and they pulled our funding. Um, and uh, and, and you know, we, weren't, we weren't necessarily happy about that, but, but we would much rather it was that way than that there was any um, semblance of, of, of us being bossed about by our funders or, or, or influenced by, by their agendas. And, and I think our funders understand that. Right. Right.
0: Um, what, how can listeners support your work? You mentioned is, uh, a small part of your funding comes from individuals, but presumably, uh, linking into campaigns and various other ways.
1: Yes, that's right. We, we, we would love to, uh, hear from people who would be interested in supporting our work financially. Um, we're very grateful for the donations we get from individuals because, those donations are in a sense that if you like the 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 most open the most the most generous um they they involve the least um reporting um and bureaucracy for us um but there are other ways in which we we want to engage people and would encourage people to take an interest in our work, even things as basic as signing up for our our email list um we we send around regular updates about what we're doing, the impacts we're having. Um, our social media feeds, like our Twitter account. Um, increasingly, we're doing pieces of work where sometimes in conjunction with other organizations which are more specialist than we are in mass mobilization, we um, we invite members of the public to work with us on uh, um, petitions, public calls for change by policymakers. That's an increasingly important part of the array of tactics that we use uh, and so we're we're hugely appreciative of of those members of the public who're willing to to engage with us in in those ways too. Right,
0: right. What's next for Global Witness? Have you uh, some new campaigns that you've been brewing, as it were, uh, direction of uh, travel?
1: Two of our newer campaigns, which I'd mentioned and I referred to them, I think, in both cases already. That we've got coming up. So, one is a kind of reimagining of our uh, long-standing work to do with governance of minerals in vulnerable parts of the world, which we're rebooting as a campaign geared towards ensuring the equitable use of so-called critical minerals that are in high demand for for green tech, and ensuring that the the communities and the countries which are which, which own those materials are getting a fair share of the benefits, including the jobs and the technology transfer, as well as protections against the the negative sides of rapacious industrial mining. So we're really excited about that. And then there are going to be the next evolutions of our work around fossil fuel companies, which I'd also like to draw attention to. Those are very fast-moving areas of work. We have a couple of campaigns on the go at the moment. One is to do with... Ukraine and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the, the, the way in which large oil and gas companies and, and oil traders have been financing that. And that's moving into a new phase now where we're working with our partners to really tighten up the the rather inadequate sanctions regimes on, on Russian oil and gas exports. And then this parallel campaign, which we call a fossil fuels newsroom, which is about making the case more directly to the public for um, uh, a demand in the uh, for a change in the way in which these oil and gas companies are able to manipulate our politics and, and dominate our economies. And so that's going to show up through lots of public storytelling, uh, a lot of it through the mainstream press here in the UK, um, as we approach, for instance, the, the season in which uh, the big oil and gas companies have their annual general meetings. That's another one to watch out for.
0: Great stuff. Very inspiring. I wish you the very best of success with all of the great uh, research and campaigning work you're doing. And thank you so much for your time today and sharing with us all of the uh, projects
1: and the uh, inspiration. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Fergal. Always delighted to talk about our work.
0: Green finance is increasingly presented as a crucial way to address climate change and biodiversity laws. Yet more often than not, financial alchemy is used to obfuscate and repackage dirty activities, which are then rebranded as green, thus maintaining the status quo. The Green Finance Observatory is an independent NGO whose mission is to analyse and decrypt these new financial markets based on pollution and nature's destruction. If you feel it is important to identify and debunk false green finance claims, fight climate change profiteering and other carbon finance mercenaries, please go to greenfinanceobservatory.org where you can support its work. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.